0: Why don't we open up with a word of prayer? <clears throat> Dear Lord, we just reaffirm to you everything that we just sang about. Lord, it, indeed, we do have countless reasons to bless your name, Lord. Your word says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Lord, the benefits of knowing you uh, cannot be counted, Lord. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us through your Son. We thank you for sending your Son to go to the cross where he bore our sins upon himself, suffering your wrath in our place so that we could be forgiven if we would trust in him. And Lord, we do put our trust in him and we make him our only boast. Lord, we know that in light of the cross... We know what we deserve is your wrath, and we know that what Christ deserves is your glory, but we know that he came to make that great exchange to take the wrath we deserve upon himself so that we may be made your sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you for what our Lord Jesus has accomplished, and we want to know him more. We want to follow him more closely. Lord, we want to love him more faithfully, and we pray that you would accomplish that today, this morning, as we go to your word, Lord, that by your spirit you would be at work in our hearts, changing us, transforming us, weakening our grip on the things of this world and strengthening our hold on the world to come, Lord. Please help us to be those who set our minds on the things above where Christ is and not on the things that are here on earth. And may you accomplish that even this morning through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews 11 again. And I'm going to read from verse 32 through to the end of the chapter. The preacher writing this goes on, he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release So that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Um, For many of us, this past Christmas and New Year may have lacked some of the joy that it usually brings with it each time this season rolls around. And if that is true in your case, and I were to press you to think about why that is, why it seemed to be missing something, I'm sure I would not have to wait long for an answer. For those of you for whom it was different, the answer you would give is probably that you were unable to gather together with all of your family. And that's because much of the joy of life comes from fellowshipping with family. We can be there for one another to share in each other's joys and pains, Rejoicing with each other, amplifying the joy and grieving with one another, spreading out the weight of the pain. And we can also be there for each other in the sense of teaching one another and learning from each other. And it's no less the case when it comes to the family of God. And I would say it's more so the case with the family of God. And if you are a believer in the one true God of the Bible, each person that we've looked at in this chapter as we've walked through it These past several weeks, they are people who are either your brother or your sister in Christ. They are your family, because Christ, through his shed blood, has reconciled both of you to the same Father. And as we've been studying their lives, like a family, we've been learning from them, learning how to walk by faith. And even though there's vast differences uh, in culture and in time that lie between us we still know that these people that we've been studying there are people our family and in looking at this passage i'm going to break it up into two sections just to help us track along a little bit better in verses 32 to 38 we're going to see the triumphs of faith the triumphs of faith and then in verses 39 through 40 We're going to see the togetherness of faith. So first we're going to look at the triumphs of faith. And the preacher, as he works through these several verses, he continues to work his way through the history of the faithful by recalling the times of the judges, of King David, and the prophets. And the preacher realizes that he could write books upon books if he were to go in depth into every single person that the Old Testament holds up to us as an example of what it looks like to walk by faith. So he considers it sufficient to just summarize these things and because he saw fit to do that, so will I. I can't go into detail about each of these individuals but I would encourage you to study the Old Testament to see the lives that these men and women lived. And this section of the triumphs of faith, I'm going to break that down even further. And we're going to start with verse 32, where we see flawed examples of faith. He says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets. So he lists six individuals by name, and these are the last ones that he will mention in regards to this chapter and five of them are judges or associates of a judge you have Gideon you have Barak who was the associate of the judge Deborah you have Samson you have Jephthah and Samuel he was the last judge but he's also a prophet and then obviously your king David we all know King David and as with the other individuals throughout this chapter these men were flawed men Men who had their own personal struggles with sin. And the preacher does not include them in the hall of faith because they were perfect. No, he includes them there because they possessed and they persevered in faith. These examples help us to see that persevering in faith is not the same thing as being perfect. Just take David's life, for example. He was a flawed man. He stole a man's wife, and then he conspired to have that man killed. But he persevered in faith. When he saw that he had sinned, he repented before God. And it's that way with all of us. Yes, we will fall into sin, but if you have faith, you will not be content to sit in your sin. You will repent, and you will seek to get back on the path of following Christ, if you have persevering faith. So there we have our flawed examples of faith. But then the preacher tells us about the famous exploits of faith that we see in these men. Verses 33 through the beginning of verse 35. He lists these guys and then verse 33 he says, "...who by faith," there's that familiar phrase, "...by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises." Shut the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. All of these individuals, they had something in common. They faced insurmountable difficulties. If we found ourselves in similar situations, common sense would tell us to give up to retreat, to not even try. But each of these individuals believed in a God who was bigger than the difficulties they faced. These men, they had a hand in conquering kingdoms, in administering justice, in obtaining promises. That is, when they took God at his word that he was going to deliver a victory into their hands, they stepped out in faith, even knowing that any strategist would say, no, you better run. They were so outnumbered, and yet they would step out in faith and watch God be faithful to his word and deliver victory into their hands. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. We think of the prophet Daniel thrown into the lion's den, and God prevented the lions from hurting him. It says they quenched the power of fire. Who does that make you think of? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar, and yet the fire didn't hurt them. They didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. They escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now, if I were to canvas the room and ask if any of you have ever been in situations like these, I probably would not find a single one. We don't usually encounter situations so extreme as these. But it doesn't take much to overwhelm us, does it? An unreasonable boss or a screaming child or a rough week on the job or in the home, all of that is enough to bring us to our wit's end about as quick as fire or sword could. That's how weak we are. And there's daily, weekly, monthly, yearly reminders of just how weak we really are. But our God is strong, and that's the point of these examples. If these men that he lists found God up to the task to handle those insurmountable difficulties, can we not trust God to handle our lesser emergencies? Do we trust him to do that? Do we trust that he can? Is he the first one we go to when we encounter something that reminds us of our weakness? Because faith, faith turns to God as our source of help. In verse 35, where it mentions women receiving back their dead by resurrection, he's starting now to consider other individuals than those he mentioned earlier. And these women makes us think of Elijah and Elisha. How those two prophets on two separate occasions God used to resurrect a woman's son and give, her back, give him back to her. That's another example of what has been accomplished by faith. And all these examples we've been going over so far these are the ones we tend to view as triumphant, right? If we kept going on through verse 35 through 38, we don't tend to include those in the triumphant category. We only think of the victories, of the escape from physical harm. But if the, if the preacher stopped the list at the beginning of verse 35, we might find ourselves quite discouraged because we might think that if I'm walking by faith, my life should look a certain way. And if I find myself continuing to have to endure a mean boss and God does not seem to be in a hurry to take him or her down a notch or two yet, does that mean I don't have faith? If despite my best efforts, my children don't turn out the way I raised them to and later in life they abandon their profession of faith in Christ, does that mean that I have no faith? If my child dies and God does not raise them from the dead, Does that mean I have no faith? If I get sick from COVID and die, does that mean I have no faith? The answer is no, it doesn't mean that. The preacher who was writing this letter to a suffering congregation, he has too good of a handle on God's word to leave it at that. God does not promise us that if we walk by faith that we will never experience hardship. That we will only know victories time, time, time after time. Because the very people that he's writing to have not experienced any of these victories. What have they experienced? They've been mocked, thrown into prison. They've had their property stolen from them by the government. And there's even stiffer persecution on the horizon if they keep walking by faith in Christ. And so the preacher, he doesn't give them these earlier examples to say that they will always be delivered from physical harm. Rather, he gives them these examples to show that the God that they are following is the same God that Samson and David and Samuel were following. That he's a big God and he's an ever-present help in times of trouble. That brings us to this next portion of verses that we tend to not view as triumphant. And these are the fiery experiences of faith. The fiery experiences of faith. Verse 35b says others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Through these verses, the preacher shows us that the triumphs of faith... Do not only show up in defeating armies or escaping the sword or not being touched by lions. No, to triumph in faith is to persevere in faith to the end, regardless of the outcome, whether you're delivered from the sword or delivered up to the sword. Triumph in faith is continuing in faith no matter what happens. And the preacher, he continues to traverse the history of the Israelite people right up until the time that occurred immediately before Christ. Verse 35, most commentators agree that the preacher here is referring to the martyrs during the time of the Maccabees. The Maccabees, they were a Jewish family who led a revolution against a man named Antiochus Epiphanes during the second century B.C. Antiochus, he was a king over the Seleucid Empire, which included Judea. And the prophet Daniel actually prophesied of the reign of Antiochus and of the persecution that he would bring upon the Jews. And Antiochus and Daniel is actually a prefiguring of the coming Antichrist. So Daniel foretold this man. This man was a wicked man. He came and he desecrated The temple. He set up an altar to Zeus, and then he proceeded to sacrifice a pig in the temple. And pigs were an unclean animal under the Mosaic law. He tried to force the Jews to convert to the Greek pagan religion. He wouldn't allow them to circumcise their kids, he wouldn't allow them to observe the Sabbath, and he tried to force them to eat pork. And you can read about these things in the books of 1 and 2 Maccabees. And these books, they're not Scripture. We don't draw any doctrine of faith from them. And yet they are helpful to see what happened during that, those silent years that Scripture doesn't mention. And there's actually a lot of great examples of faith to be found there. It's kind of similar to Fox's Book of Martyrs in that way. And if you were to read the book of Second Maccabees you would find the example of a woman who had seven sons. And this woman and her seven sons, they were scourged and they were whipped to try to get them to eat pig meat. And again, that was forbidden under the law of Moses. And they refused. This woman and her seven sons, they wouldn't do it. And so Antiochus took each one of these sons, one by one, And he tortured them to such a degree that I can't go into detail about it. It was awful. So he would do this. He would take one son, torturing them, trying to get them to go against the law of God, and he would fail, and then he would go the next one, the next one, the next one. And each one of these sons, pretty much all of them, had something profound to say, speaking of the hope that they had that enabled them to face what they faced. So, Sons 1 through 6, it happened to all of them. And then it came down to the seventh son, his turn. He was the youngest. And he had just seen what his six brothers had gone through, the brutality that they had endured. And Antiochus, he tries to get at this son. He says that he's going to make this son rich. He even promises him that he'll be a friend to himself if he would just eat the meat, the pig meat. And the son refused. So Antiochus then turned to his mother and tried to get his mom to reason with him to just eat the pork and then this won't happen to you. And I want you to listen to what this woman said after seeing six of her sons die and now the last son she's got. She has a chance to try to save his earthly life. But listen to what she says. She says, Oh my son, have pity on me that bore you nine months in my womb and gave you suck three years and nourished you and brought you up unto this age and endured the troubles of education. I beseech you, my son, look upon the heaven and the earth and all that is therein and consider that God made them of things that were not. And so was mankind made likewise. And then listen to what she says. Fear not this tormentor, But being worthy of your brothers, take your death, that I may receive you again in mercy with your brothers. This woman, she was not focused on saving her son's earthly life. She was concerned about the life to come, that she would have her sons with her in the life to come. She desired their perseverance in the faith, even unto death, because she knew she'd get them all back again. So this son, he followed his brothers in death, and then this mother followed her sons in death. All they had to do in order to escape this torment was to eat some pork. But that would have been to sin against God under the Mosaic Covenant. And under those circumstances, this family considered that to compromise in this way would be forsaking their God in exchange for these pagan gods. We read at the beginning of verse 35 of women receiving their dead back by resurrection. But these women, they received their sons back only to have them die at a later date. And it says at the end of verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, a permanent resurrection. Resurrection. This woman and her sons, they refused to be released so that they might attain that better permanent resurrection. That was their focus. That is why they did not accept their release. The preacher goes on in verses 36 to 38 to mention even more numbers of faithful individuals. And the things mentioned here, they fit a lot about what is said about the prophets. And a lot of that you can read in the Old Testament. Some of it is more on Jewish tradition of what happened. For example, the individual sawn in two. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two under the rule of King Manasseh. But you read in the Old Testament of the prophets that ministered during the times of the wicked kings of Israel and Judah, they endured all of these things. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were ill treated. They wandered around in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. None of that sounds very triumphant, does it? But what is said about these people in verse 38? It says that they were those of whom the world was not worthy. That's an ironic statement. One commentator says it like this. He says, They were outlawed as people who were unfit for civilized society. So civilized society viewed these believers in God and thought they were just barbarians. They didn't deserve to walk the same earth that they walked. The commentator goes on. He says, The truth was that civilized society was unfit for them. They were Those of whom the world was not worthy. And the implication of this statement is that these sufferers, they were precious in God's sight. The implication is that He's bringing about a world that will be worthy of His people. And the other implication is that these sufferers were seeking the world to come. If they were not seeking the world to come, they would have tried to fit in with this world. That woman and her seven sons, they would have just eaten the pork and got on with their lives. But they weren't seeking this world. And the question for us is, are we living as those of whom this world is not worthy? Or are we desperately trying to, to fit in among the godless? Are we breathlessly seeking the approval of those who hate God? instead of seeking God's approval, who's made us citizens of a coming kingdom. But each of these individuals, they persevered in faith. They triumphed in faith because they endured to the end. When we consider what they went through, the next verse, verse 39, can seem to be a bit of a shocker. It says, "...and all these, having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Yes, they'd been justified, declared righteous through their faith, yet they did not receive the very thing for which they strove and in the light of which they lived. This verse echoes verse 13, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how they all died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This promise that that the preacher is speaking of, it's literally, in verse 39, they did not receive the promise. What is this promise, this ultimate promise, this big P promise? Well, we saw it in verses 14 through 16. Those people who died in faith, they were seeking what? The better country that God had promised them. That's the promise. That God is preparing a better country, an eternal city for His people where He will eternally dwell with them. And these people, in verses 32 to 38, they accomplished much, they achieved much, they suffered much, but at the end of their lives, they were still left waiting for that better country. And the question is why? Why would God make them wait? Why would God withhold that from them? And the answer to that question is given in verse 40. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And this brings us to that second point, the togetherness of faith. God postponed the kingdom because he provided something better for us, you and me. You don't have to turn there, but Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people, zealous for good deeds. Jesus came to redeem a people, not a part of a people, but a whole people. And he is not going to bring in that better country, that better something, until he has gotten all of his people. Verse 40 says, God had provided something better. What is that something better? Well, it includes the better country mentioned in verse 16, but there's a lot more to it as well. Because what is the preacher's favorite word in this book? It's better. He repeats that word throughout the whole book. He's shown us so far that in Jesus we have someone who's better than the angels, who's brought us a better hope, who's instituted for us a better covenant, which was enacted on better promises. Jesus gave himself to be the better sacrifice for sins. And because he did that, he's purchased for us that better possession, that better country, and that better resurrection At the cross, Jesus purchased an entire people over whom he will rule in a better country after that better resurrection has taken place. These Hebrew believers that the preacher's writing to, as they faced persecution, they probably found themselves wondering, why has God not brought in the kingdom yet? And we can question likewise when we suffer our trials. We can ask God, why don't you just bring in the kingdom now so that we can have done with this? But we need to realize God could have brought in the kingdom after David. He could have sent the Messiah then, brought in the kingdom then, but where would that leave you and I? We would not be in the kingdom. So why did God delay it? Why is he holding that door open? It's so that you and I today could enter into that kingdom. And the fact that we are not in the kingdom yet tells us what? That there are still more people to be brought into the kingdom yet. In chapter 12, verse 1, the preacher, he speaks of the life of faith as a race to be run. And as we run this race there's a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Those who have run the race before us. Those who testify to us or witness to us of what it looks like to run this race. And it is not until the very last one of Christ's people have crossed the finish line of the race of faith that God will then bring about that better country. Only then will we be made perfect, as it says in verse 40, in the fullest... Sense. He says, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Yes, we've already been made perfect in conscience. We saw that in chapter 9 of Hebrews and in chapter 10. But there seems to be a fuller sense intended here, closer to the sense intended when the preacher speaks about the perfection of Christ. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 9 of Hebrews, The preacher says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So when the preacher is speaking of the perfection of Christ, he seems to take into view not only suffering but also exaltation. You see something similar in chapter 5, verse 8. Where he says, "...although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation." being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, there's two elements there, suffering, exaltation, related to the fact of Jesus being perfected or made perfect. And then when we come back to chapter 12 and verse 2, what do we read about Jesus, the one we are to fix our eyes upon? It says he is the author and the perfecter. Of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, that's the suffering, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, that's the exaltation. And Jesus, he's the only one who has run this race perfectly, and being that perfect one, he is now the perfecter of those of us who are still running the race. The day is coming when he will finish the job. He will perfect us. He will exalt us to be with him where he is, to be like him as he is in his humanity, not only in spirit but bodily as well when he brings in his kingdom at the end of the age. All of God's people are going to enter into the kingdom in the fullest sense, not in a piecemeal fashion, but together He didn't take David and then, after David died, resurrect him and then just stick him into the kingdom. He hasn't been doing that bit by bit with every saint that's gone along. He's waiting until he has gathered together the fullness of his people and then he will bring us all into the kingdom together. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We see this togetherness in many places in scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, you have people in the church concerned because some of their number have died and they're worried that maybe they've missed out on the kingdom. But he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord will be together, all of us. Back to Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings, for both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified that's all believers, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The day is coming when we all together, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, are together hearing Christ proclaim the praises of his Father. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. We see this togetherness. We see this idea of a whole people that God is bringing to the kingdom. Revelation six, verse nine. The apostle John, he's given a vision of the martyrs coming out of the tribulation. says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord? Holy and true. Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're saying, when, Lord, are you going to wrap this thing up? Verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until what? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And then lastly, chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 4. This is the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, that is, unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Jesus is raising up all believers so that they can all participate in his kingdom. Even those saints martyred in the tribulation, he will raise them up so that we all together can go into the kingdom. This is the togetherness of faith. Why do you think it is that we love to gather together. It is because we are the one people of God, the family of Christ. There is a special joy in doing things together as the people of God. The better country that we're looking for is one in which we are all, Old Testament and New Testament saints alike, going to enter in together. And this realization, that only adds to the anticipation that is fueling our desire to persevere in faith. We want to be there with everyone, worshiping Christ together. And we want everyone to be there with us. That is why multiple times the preacher exhorts us to look after one another, to encourage one another in the faith to make sure that we all obtain the better resurrection. if you have turned away from your sins and you have put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ through his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, I want you to realize that God has delayed the coming of the kingdom so that you can enter into it. That is the depth of his love for you, Christian. He's holding the door open. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow. About his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And again, the fact that we are not in the kingdom now means that there are still more people to come. And so we need to hasten the coming of the kingdom by bringing the gospel to the ones who are still without Christ. And we need to keep encouraging one another to persevere in faith that we all might obtain that better resurrection by the grace of God through faith in Christ. So Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning that you have provided for us to learn more about what it looks like to persevere in faith. There are many various circumstances that you have brought your people through, Lord. But the, the important thing is that we persevere in faith, that we keep trusting, keep resting in Jesus alone as our Savior, put our hope in him alone. And if we do that, your word promises us that you are bringing us all together into that better country. And Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we read of in John 6, Lord Jesus, that all the ones that your Father has given to me, all of them you will raise up on the last day and you will lose not one of them. We thank you that you are at work, ensuring that we will all make it, those of us who have hidden ourselves in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. In his name, amen.